Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. We are, for this Advent series, studying the hymns of Christmas. Last week we looked at Isaiah 9, an Old Testament hymn of Christmas. Today, Matthew 2. But one that you may not typically think of as a hymn that you would want to sing for Christmas. Unless Christmas for you is not merry and bright. Sometimes we have this idea that some that uh, Christmas is going to make everything right, that somehow magically the brokenness in our lives or particular heartache that we have, the tragedies that we live with in our world, that somehow they're magically going to be gone and yet they persist even through Christmas. I want you to hear in this hymn the voice of your heavenly father particularly as he expressed himself in the Lord Jesus who came into the midst of all our brokenness who did not shy away from any part of our humanity and came in order to be like us and to redeem this broken world from the inside out, using you and me to bring that same victory. If you need that kind of hope, I urge you to look with me. Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. You can find it on page 808 in the Bibles provided for you in the pew. Here is what God says. Then Herod... When he saw he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah. Weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child, his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Please open our eyes, O Lord, that we would behold in this passage of Scripture so dark and tragic on its face, but would we behold the good news of a Savior who has been born to bring an end to all evil and suffering. O Lord Jesus, for any who have not yet taken Christ as Lord and Savior, would this be the day 
Not only that they experience new life, but the new joy of participating in this hopeful work of redemption. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said together, amen. One of the great heroes of the modern church is Helen Rosevere, who passed away just a few years ago. Helen Rosevere came to Christ, though she'd grown up in the Anglican church in England. She went on to medical school, not really considering Jesus very much. She wanted God to prove himself to her, but in a dramatic way, he did that in medical school. And in a retreat, he drew her to himself. And she said, sometimes to the embarrassment of her more proper English friends, she said, that night I fell in love with Jesus. He called her to medical work in the Congo. And in 1958, the Civil War broke out in the Congo where she was. And after a number of months, it finally reached her mission station. It was a horrific time in Congolese history. Of 27 Protestant missionaries slain, 200 nuns killed, Uh, a countless number of priests, 250,000 Congolese, a brutal, terrible, terrifying time. Eventually that pogrom came to the mission station where Helen Rosevere served with her fellow medical professionals and and, uh, they took over their station. And then after a number of weeks, they turned their anger on Helen herself and brutalized her. She said as she was being attacked, she was tempted to think that God had forsaken her. This one she had fallen in love with, this one she had served with her whole life, that somehow he had forgotten her, that he had He was neglecting her. And then she said, he heard him speak to her in her heart, asking this very challenging, stupefying question. Can you thank me for trusting you with this experience, though I may never tell you why? God saying, can you thank me for my trusting you with this experience, though I may never tell you why? It took her years to recover from what she went through. She doesn't make light of the horrific experience that she that she went through, but she nevertheless experienced by the time of her death, why, in part, this unthinkable thing had happened. Not that God had made it happen, but that he was going to use it for his redemptive purposes of bringing hope to many, many people who were suffering, especially women, for the rest of her life. Asking that question, 
Can you thank me for trusting you with this experience so I may never tell you why? And she remembered upon that question, she remembered what had been written in her Bible as a new believer by her pastor from Philippians 3.10. I count it all joy to know Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings and the privilege of suffering with him. Privilege. Her, 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 her pastor wrote in the front of her Bible, Philippians 1.10, but just one word, privilege. Rosevere said throughout her life, as she told this testimony, many of you, some of you probably have heard it. She used that word, it is a privilege. When you know Christ to be your good and sovereign savior, you count it a privilege Whatever he trusts, entrusts you with, even suffering. What does it have to do with this passage? This hymn that we hear, a voice heard in Ramah, is a prophecy made through Jeremiah by God, through the word of God, 500 years before this even happened. It is the voice of Jesus himself saying, I weep with you. When you know Christ to be your good and sovereign savior, you know one who validates as a good savior, validates even the worst of your suffering. And you know him to be a sovereign savior. You know one who redeems even the worst turns it to his glory and our good. Well, look at verses 16 to 18, this point that a good savior validates our worst suffering. In theology, we talk about union with Christ. We know what that means that when you come to Christ, We we don't understand it, but we can describe it that when we come to Christ, he attaches our lives to his. He indwells us. He, he, He takes us to himself. He unites us body and soul to himself. And so that every place in scripture where we read that these things are for you in Christ, we understand that all of our blessings, all of our salvation, all of our security, our eternal life is found in our union with Christ. But there's a subpoint in theology on the union with, of union with Christ, and it is union with Christ in his sufferings. We know that from places like First Peter chapter 1, that we follow in his steps. We, we will follow in his steps of suffering. But we don't often think of the other half of that that Christ is united with us in our suffering, that suffering that is with and for him. That's what we certainly see in, in this encounter, that, uh, that uh, or this, this, this horrific pogrom that Herod carried out on these children in Bethlehem. Here's the context. The the wise men came from the east. They saw a star somehow or another. While they're stargazing, they see a star. And somehow they hear the revelation that this star means that a 
a, a child is born and who's going to be king of the Jews. And they understand even from that, from that star, that revelation, somehow God got that to their minds that he was more than a, a political king. He was going to be a divine king because they came not just to pay homage to him and give him tribute, but they came to worship him. And so naively, they come up to Herod. He's the big cheese in the country. He's been given all kinds of power. He should know everything that's happening in his kingdom. <clears throat> and he's very familiar with Judaism, even with their prophecies. So they knock on their door and they say, we've come from the east. We're coming to visit the new king of, the new king of Israel. Now, they didn't know how paranoid and evil Herod was. So this was threatening to him. So he called in the scribes and the, and, the, and the religious scholars. And he said, where was this king supposed to be born? I know that he was going to be born in prophecy, but where? And they said, in Bethlehem. And he, from the wise men, he'd found that they'd been traveling maybe for a little less than two years. So he orders that all the male children in Bethlehem, be slaughtered. Here is a man <clears throat> so consumed with his power that he's willing to, to kill the Son of God to keep him from threatening his rule. Here is a man so paranoid that when he found out that the wise men didn't come back because they'd been warned in a dream not to come back. He, he, he had been made fun of. He had been, he had been tricked. This is a man. When, when, when it says that Herod became uh, furious and all Jerusalem with him, it wasn't that they were furious like him. They were terrified because Herod had the reputation that when he got upset, he started killing people. Soon after he became king, he killed all the Sanhedrin. He killed his wife, Mary Amney. He killed his sons, Antipater, Alexandrus, Aristobulus. And even on his deathbed, he ordered that all the prominent men of Jerusalem be slaughtered. This is, Herod is, one of the most evil men who's ever walked the face of the earth. And here, on the hunt for the Messiah, trying to kill the Messiah, kills all the male babies in the village of Bethlehem. Utter evil. Maybe you are the victim of evil. It can't be called anything else. You or a loved one, or your people experienced wickedness, premeditated evil. Or we look at it in our world. People who can still say that they wish a whole people group were gone. We look at wickedness in the world and in its wars, in its injustices worldwide, and we cry out, How long, O oh Lord, do you not notice that men and women plot on their beds 
the wicked schemes they can carry out against others, and they have the power, some of them, to do it. What what could help us? Does it not help us that this is written in Scripture? Does it not help us that God, 500 years before it occurs, says, I see it and I weep over it? Does it not help us all the more to know as we've studied the Psalms on occasion and we recognize that the, the Psalms are the record of, God, of Jesus' internal sufferings? We know he became sin for us. We know by outside observation what he endured for us. But the Psalms are the record of Jesus' emotional suffering. Church fathers have always believed this. And so we can look at almost any place in the Psalm. The Psalm is full of, the Psalms are full of betrayals, of, of evil plots. And here's one such in Psalm 64. Six, hear my voice, O God. Hold, they hold fast to their evil purpose. They think of laying snares. Secretly, they search out injustice. You know, that's one thing to to identify with the psalmist. It's another thing when you hear Jesus praying that. Hear my voice, O God. These men are lying on their beds plotting evil against your son. Jesus understands what it is to encounter evil, the most evil of motives. Whatever you've suffered, whatever you've endured, whatever your loved ones have gone through, whatever part of history you're grieving, Jesus empathizes and validates those who suffer from the most evil of motives. And Jesus identifies with, empathizes with the most tragic of losses. You know, the, the, the church has celebrated from the first century, the church celebrated these infants as martyrs. Irenaeus, the church father, said, these were ones whom God the Father saw fit to send ahead to the kingdom. It's not that they saw that it was right. They saw that it was an evil and wickedness, but they understood that these suffered and died for the name of Christ. They weren't conscious of it, but Herod was looking for Jesus when he killed these babies. The Feast of Innocence is still celebrated in many parts of the church to this day. Now, Bethlehem was very small. So it means that this was 20 or 30 babies. 20 or 30. If you've lost a child, you know. It doesn't matter if it's one or a thousand. Every loss of a child is the most tragic of losses. When we see those images of war, it doesn't matter if it's a Palestinian child dying under rubble or an Israeli child beheaded by terrorists. 
it doesn't matter what kind of child it is. We know that a child, the death of a child is the most tragic of losses. And you hear it from your heavenly father. The father caused this to be written. A voice heard in Ramah, Rachel, this one who represents Israel, who ultimately represents Christ, Christ weeping for his children. While Jesus is a baby himself, Christ, the infinite second person of the Godhead, is weeping for these whom he created and who died for him. In the Psalter, he says, precious is their blood to me, the blood of the innocent, the weak, and the vulnerable. We have, as we know from John 11, a Savior who weeps. Whatever your loss, however you've lost it, however deep it is, you may know. Jesus understands it, has experienced it, empathizes with it, weeps over it, and died to cure it. Praise God, the, <clears throat> the passage doesn't end here. He, he did not kill Jesus. He tragically killed those 20 or 3, 30 little boys, but he didn't kill Jesus. God took him into Egypt because he is going to represent the true Israel. At every point that Israel failed, he's going to succeed. At every point we fail, he is going to succeed. He is the conquering savior. God took him into Egypt that he might save him as he saved his people, the line through which he would come. And then he's going to liberate him from Egypt and bring him back to Nazareth. And he's going to live in that region in our place. And he's going to die in our place. He's going to rise in that place. The promise is for us that he, the sovereign savior, is going to redeem whatever suffering, whatever trials there are in this life. He's going to redeem them, first of all, by bringing them to an end. Someday he'll bring them to an end. You, you, you know, you, you, you can be assured that the people living under Herod <clears throat> taxed hopelessly under his iron rule, more power than almost anyone in his, in his position ever possessed before or after. You can be sure that there were some who, who felt hopeless. There is going to be no end to this. But Herod died. As every evil person does. As every wicked king does. Herod died. He knew that his sons... Have the ones he allowed to live, were never going to be afforded the same power that he, that he received. So he, he decided ahead of time he was going to divide his kingdom among the three sons. <clears throat> Part to the north he was going to give to, to Philip. And, and uh, over to the west he's going to give to, uh, to uh, Antipater. And then to the, to the southwest he's going to give 
to Archelaus. And so he was, these, Joseph was warned in a dream, don't go back to this area because Archelaus is ruling there. And Archelaus is walking in the footsteps of his father. He's already killed 3,000 people that didn't agree with him. None of those three sons succeeded in their, their kingship either. Herod's rule came to an end with his death and soon it dissipated with the deaths of his children. They did much evil, but that ended too. And who's ever heard outside of the Bible of Herod, king of the Jews, Judea? What happened to the Roman Empire? The same thing that happened to other children for whom Rachel was weeping. The children of Assyria, the children of, of, uh, of, of Egypt, the children of, that, that, went in, that, that were dispersed by Assyria, the children who went into, into captivity in Babylon, these children who are dying here, all of those powers that brought evil and oppression against the people of God, they all go away. God's kingdom outlasts all of them. This prophecy made by Jeremiah in the context of Jeremiah, if we had time, we would look at, at Jeremiah 31, where this occurs. And in the context of that, of that chapter, Jeremiah is telling his people who are in captivity, I know you're weeping and God treasures your tears and he's weeping with you, but do not weep as those who have no hope. I'm going to bring this suffering to an end. Jeremiah 31, 27 and 31. I'm going to bring about a remnant. I'm going to, I'm going to hold together a group of people who are going to be restored to the kingdom. And through them, I'm going to bring my son. <clears throat> I'm going to forgive you of your sins. My covenant loves, Jeremiah 31, 10, will never change. I'm disciplining you, but I will never quit loving you. I'm going to forgive you and I'm going to bring from you a branch. Remember that language from Zechariah 3? Remember that language from Isaiah 9? I'm going to bring from you a branch, a shoot. I'm going to bring a baby. That baby is going to grow up just like you. He's going to, he's going to come up. In the midst of suffering, he's going to take it all on his shoulders. And he's going to defeat it from the inside out. He's going to die to forgive you of your sins. He's going to rise from the dead. And someday he's going to return. He's going to bring judgment on all wickedness. Why does it say he returned to Nazareth? Remember the prophecy in Isaiah 9? I'm going to bring someone to you by the way of the sea. Into Galilee. Into Nazareth in particular. A very unlikely place. But strategic. Because of its location. Surely Jesus was an active little boy. Ran around streets of Nazareth. There's some, there's some hills in Nazareth. And surely he climbed up to one of those hills where he could see something remarkable. If he looked to the west, he'd see the Mediterranean. 
which opened up into all of Europe. If you look to the east, he could see the Silk Road that ran by which the Roman Empire was extended, by, by which the church traveled even to the Far East in the first several centuries. He could look to the north where it spread to the rest of the Middle East. He could, he could look to the south, the land bridge into Africa where it spread as well. God took Jesus from Egypt back into Nazareth as a beachhead from which he would conquer the world. That gospel of a triumphant kingdom has gone north, south, east, west. And no matter what other kingdom, what other evils, what other evil motives, what other diseases, what other uh, opposition and oppression and injustices have been launched against the church of Jesus Christ, nothing has been able to conquer her. And if God has been able to do that through the millennia, and whatever this is, Whatever this experience is that Jesus has trusted you with, you can thank him ahead of time. For with purposes he's going to bring from it, ultimately, by which he is going to judge evil. Get a name for himself and cause your faith to come forth brighter than gold. I read some time ago the story of the composition of the hymn that we're about to sing, O Little Town of Bethlehem, written by Phillips Brooks. Phillips Brooks was one of the greatest orators of all time, but a preacher of the gospel as well. Holy Trinity Church in Philadelphia. Philip Brooks' life didn't start out so promising. A humble beginning went to Went to a good school, became a teacher, but he was a failure as a teacher. Sort of in desperation, he, he went to seminary. In seminary, he discovered that this pain that he had experienced his whole childhood, the, the losses, the suffering he had experienced, helped him have insight into Scripture. He became a powerful preacher, much sought after, so much so that soon after graduation, he was... He was Call to this very prestigious pulpit, Holy Trinity of Philadelphia in 1861. From the beginning, his church encountered suffering. Every week, there were new people dressed in mourning clothes of black who had lost a father, a husband, a, a brother uh, to the Civil War. The tender-spirited Philip Brooks, Phillips Brooks uh, took it all in. It was, it was heavy on him. It, it wore him down. But the people expected him to bring inspirational sermons every week. No one really asked about how hey, he was doing. He just, uh, just bring the sermons. He suffered with his people. By 1865, he was visibly broken down by... The whole period of time. He thought I, I have just enough gas. 
to get across the finish line. And surely, surely things are going to get better when the war ends. My people will come alive again. I'll find, I'll find fresh inspiration and so forth. But then the president was assassinated. And they asked Phillips Brooks, the greatest, most eloquent preacher in the country, to preach his funeral. He had nothing. He was spent. And yet he was able to find enough by God's help to preach one more sermon. And then he said, I was finished with the ministry. There was nothing that could restore me. I doubted even my faith. So he left the pulpit, went to the Holy Land for a tour. One evening, he had to get away. He thought, I got to get away from all these voices, all these people in this tour. It's just too loud. I've got, and, my, and, and I'm not sure I believe anymore. So he, he asked for a horse so he could ride out into uh, the pasture land in Bethlehem. And they said, you can't go out there. There are thieves out there. You'll get robbed. He, he took the horse anywhere. Anyway, and he, he rode out into the pasture land. He, he found the traditional spot of where the shepherds were. And, and, and then the traditional spot of, of, Jesus, of Jesus' birth. And then he said there on Christmas Eve, under the stars, the Middle Eastern sky, God reminded him, Jesus is Emmanuel. God came to this place. This place was, that was as full of thieves then as it was now. This place where people were outcasts and where there was wickedness, where there was oppression by Herod. Jesus came into this that he might save us from the inside out. His, his faith was refreshed and restored. He came back to Philadelphia. He struggled to find the words to express to his people what had happened to him. Finally, he penned a simple poem. His music director set it to music. It took three years before he could at least compress it into this. And he says, O holy child of Bethlehem, Descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. Oh, come to us. Stay with us. Abide with us. Oh, Lord, God, Emmanuel, God with us. You have a good and sovereign Savior. And because you do, it is never hopeless. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Open our eyes, O oh Lord, not just to understand what we've studied, but to believe it. And then cause it to go deep into our hearts and give us that hope of the Holy Spirit overflowing with love in our hearts. Give us hope as we grieve, as we suffer. Oh Lord, may we learn to thank you ahead of time for the victory you will gain in us as well as in our world. 
at the great day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.